You're listening to PhDiva's podcast, and I'm Dr. Zain Yao, representing the humanities. Stay tuned for part two of my two-part interview with Dr. Cassie Ose, who is a historian of Afro-Brazilian women's history. In the second part of this interview, she'll be talking about pandemic pedagogy and Sailor Moon and hope. Enjoy. And I find like in my teaching, and I'm curious if you also find it this way, it's like on the one hand, we're trying to teach things because they are not being taught but if we only stay with the insistence that here is this thing that you haven't been taught before we end up also reducing that nuance unless we make sure that it's like no yes we have you have to teach you about the social context about this but it's not reducible to that either yeah i really confronted that in the last course that i taught which was in spring 2021 African-American women, or it was like Black women's history. And it was so fascinating. I tried to write this for the AHA, the American Historical Association's um, Perspectives mag, mag, but they didn't, they declined. And that's okay. Um, But it was the first time that I had a majority black class at the University of Illinois. And it was the first time I had a majority class of black women or like um, designated women, female at birth. And on top of that, it was majority women of color. So it was like black women, non-black women of color, black men, non-black men of color, I don't, and then like white women, like a couple of white women, um, and some um, white um, non-binary people. And what I was struck by was that for a lot of the students, it was like the first time they were encountering this, which is why they wanted to take it. They were like, I want to know what I don't know. But then we would get to points where they were like saying the same thing over and over and over again. They're like, I don't know. I never learned this. I never learned this. I never learned this. And I was like, well, what? Why do you say that over and over again? And what do you think? What do you want to happen now that you know this stuff? You know, and so we would have to have conversations about what they were experiencing. And part of it was like an emotional trauma response. I had a student who had a history of lynching in her family. And she would say, I didn't know this because her family refused to talk about a lot of the racial violence in their family. But she also grew up in a school where they called, they referred to the Civil War as the War of Northern um, Aggression. God. And she was taught like the birth of a nation retelling of Reconstruction. So she had some cosmetic differences once she moved to Chicago. But this was the first time she was being confronted with a very critical comprehensive understanding of like the United States and for the first time it was centering black women because black women had been on the periphery for her 
excluding Rosa Parks. And even that, you know, moments where we're like, we just know about Rosa Parks. And I was like, you don't know about Rosa Parks. Because you don't know that she was like an anti-rape activist. That she was like investigating sexual violence of like white men perpetrated against black women, particularly black domestic workers. Um, and so we, in engaging that, we had, we could move from a space of like, I don't know, and feeling like even a sense of helplessness and the I don't know to like, I know something and this is how it can transform my worldview and also how I can utilize that information for my own discipline. Because almost none of them were history majors. Most of them were in health sciences, in business, in um, English, creative writing, other, other dis- social work, other disciplines. They weren't going to be historians. But they were able to have this history and say, now I have the language to talk about Black maternal mortality. Now I have the language to articulate myself as like a person and my multiplicity. And that cut across race and gender um, divides and class. Um, so, yeah, I think a way to engage that is like trauma-informed, um, but it also calls us to do I think we have we're doing it but we're all tired but we really have to like call back to the time when the pandemic was just starting and like really create these robust like care networks for ourselves as like academics as people who teach as people who do labor and the academy because like this didn't come to me as like an individual. It came through the practices I was already doing in conjunction with my friends and my mentors and my allies and my colleagues, you know, trying to support each other through the pandemic. Um, And, you know, it's really alarming because we see the ways that um, people are breaking ADA laws where they apply, um, organizations are not offering um, or saying that we will not offer virtual options in the future um, for like conferences, um, that people just want to not have the option for like online courses because online courses are bad. Um, And I just like, it's my opinion, but I don't think we're going to survive if we do that. Mm -hmm. We have to take the lessons of the ongoing pandemic and create something more robust because we're all miserable going back to what was, you know? No, I feel that. I think it's, when you talk about the early days of the pandemic, it's also kind of absurd the extent to which pretty much everyone kept going except for those who couldn't, but then everyone, all the rest of us kept going, even though it's going to become less and less tenable. And yet that's continued to ossify into a norm that tries to mimic the previous norm. 
And now I think like, rather than trying to have make it through and like, and it felt like sort of maybe a type of urgency to try and, and maintain so many things, especially pedagogically, because you wanted some sort of form of stability for your students. And, and it was a it's time I felt like I think a kind of care and a type of responsibility. But I can't help but wonder, like, what if we had stayed with how overwhelming it was and whether that have forced us to do something better? Yeah. And I, I don't have an answer for that. Um, yeah. Because for many of us who kept going, our bodies was like, okay, it's time. And the body stopped and said, sit with this. Like, I had a moment where I wasn't recognizing how stressed I was. And then I couldn't breathe when I was trying to sleep. And I thought I had COVID, but I was having panic attacks. And panic attacks didn't manifest like that for me um, until that moment. And I was really distraught because I was like, I'm having panic attacks in the form that I can't breathe at night. That's really bad. So um, I was TAing with um, a member of my committee at the time. And I let him know and I let my advisor know, like, I am not well (laughs) and I need to, like, slow down. So the chapter will get to you when it gets to you, you know? And I told my students, like, your grades will get to you when it gets to you. I'm really sorry, but, like, I have to take care of myself. I'm not going to die for this. And they were all very understanding. Um, and I think that that understanding is what allowed me to finish. I think if I didn't have that understanding, I don't know how I could have finished my PhD in the pandemic. What's been painful, and this is just me commiserating, is like on the UK side, they say the structure of UK academia is so bureaucratic that there's, there'd be no flexibility for that sort of thing. Like there's been extensions for students, but for instance, for deadlines, for when we have to turn things around, it's actually centrally dictated for us. It's not just that we apply to get students by a certain thing. It's like if we, the university makes us, and there seems to be so, there's so little wiggle room. There's talking to some colleagues about how to make a change on a course, you have to do it over a year and a half in advance. And so that allows you no flexibility whatsoever to your needs, to student needs, to the needs of how the profession is changing, to how to make work responsive to the moment in which you're teaching. And yet, you know, teaching innovation is something that gets touted as a buzzword in a very empty way. <laughs> Sorry, this is just me me ranting now, but No, you're good. I mean I think it calls upon us to like discuss like the way that, you know, I also grew up with this regarding my parents. Like they thought that going to a university for like a college degree was like job prep, Mm -hmm. you know, like these universities use that language of like teaching innovation or whatever, because it's like job marketing language. 
Um, you're trying to court a consumer base to enroll at your university. So you get their money and you promise them that they will have transferable skills that will get them a job. It's not good enough to just learn for learning's sake. Um, I don't know how that squares up in the UK, but a lot of um, state colleges or universities like the University of Illinois, they are marketing a certain type of idea about the utility of an education. Um, And it's not, I'm not putting that on them necessarily, but it is a response to the complete gutting or the project of getting public education in the United States for the past 40, 50 years and trying to compensate for that through getting private funds and trying to promise students that um, the increasing tuition is justified for the work for the jobs that they will get but most I don't know my youngest sibling's the last person to um, graduate college in my family my immediate family Um, they just graduated last week and um, they're like they don't know anybody who is immediately employed (laughs) anybody unless that person came from a rich family and already had something lined up through you know that person's social network but most people are going to leave college they're going to even if they're professionalized are going to be working these low wage jobs you know that was definitely true in my in my graduating class so you know, we have to ask different questions, but also we have to acknowledge that for a lot of people, they can't afford to ask those questions. Because not only does it put everything in jeopardy, but it's like, well, what am I working for then? This might seem like a big sh- shift, but I think we're we're talking about very, very brutal economic reality. <laughs> And I also want to steer the question to Sailor Moon, not because I think yeah. it's a complete counter to that, but like thinking that something. So I, I ask, I'm bringing this up for our listeners because, uh, as Cassie mentioned, she has been to anime and other things, but also she's very dedicated. So Moon Fandra, aka Mooney. Um, and I think that so much of that role to fantasy is something that exists alongside all these difficulties that we're describing in terms of trying to navigate an increasingly hostile job market, uh, navigating also education being defunded, and that things like like the fantasy of anime are not, might seem separate from it, but I think it also can be a very sustaining thing from people. Um, and I wonder if that might be a nice nice thing to explore because i also don't want you to to leave our conversation just with the heaviness (laughs) i love this also i want to say that my eighth my eighth house is an aries (laughs) and eighth house like deals with like grief and death and um i'm my sun sign is an aries and my venus is an aries and i think venus is an aries right now so like 
Yeah. I I, I deal with the heavy stuff on a regular mm-hmm. basis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm a very joyful person. <laughs> I have duality. Um, for the listeners, yes, I am a very, very, very committed Mooney. Sailor Moon, I think, is like my longest fandom. Um, I collect Sailor Moon merchandise. Um, Sailor Moon um, has been in my life, I think, since 1990. 19- 98 or 97 Mm. and a lot of my internet experience started with sailor moon because um there are definitely people who remember geocities yes but like in the late 90s early 2000s there were a lot of like anime fan sites and people would like visit those and they would learn about like um different anime that maybe was being broadcast in the United States, but was being heavily censored or hadn't arrived yet. Um, And so I learned a lot about what I was missing in the English version of Sailor Moon that way. Um, And people would post like their merchandise, like the dolls. I specifically, I collect um, Sailor Moon, like, um, transformation um wands and like the 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 compacts oh yes the transformation compacts yeah yeah Yeah. so those were re-released with like i think the 20th or the 25th anniversary of sailor moon this year will be the 30th anniversary no it has already happened this year is the 30th anniversary of sailor moon um yeah, because it debuted in 90, 90, 1992. So it's as old as me. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I collect those. I collect like the manga. I've been slow to collect the manga because like the, the, the wands and the compacts are more pressing because they're limited edition. But I remember years ago when, um, like, the Frisky and all of those, like, feminist blogs were, like, online. And there was, like, some comedian who was talking about how she hated Zoe Deschanel because she reminded her of a child. And she was really into cute things, and that was bad. And I wasn't invested in Zoe de Chanel, but I was just like, there's nothing wrong with like cute shit. And like, mm-hmm. it can be subversive in a way. And somebody wrote to me, a friend of mine wrote to me on Facebook, she was significantly older than me. And she was like, you're not going to like cute shit forever. Like you're going to become like a 30 year old. And you're not going to be in sa- into Sailor Moon anymore. And I was like, Watch me. I will be, like, <laughs> on God. <laughs> and here I am. But, um, yeah, fantasy has utility. I mean, I talk to my, I'm very close with my youngest sibling. I always tell them, like, anime has nothing on, like, our current reality. Like, absolutely. Like, Evangelion, like, this timeline that we're living in is worse than anything in Evangelion. 
Uh, this is like after the third impact or something. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> because like our world is like filled with like um, Genjo Ikaris like everywhere and That's like true. bad parents and you know and we are we are the we are the children who are going to our jobs every day and dealing with this but um yeah i think of the fantasy of sailor moon in a number of ways like sailor moon was there for me when i had my first slash only suicide attempt um I found a lot of solace in Sailor Moon after that, when I was like trying to rebuild my life. Um, For people who are not familiar with Sailor Moon, people are more familiar with the whole like boss of the day or monster of the day type format of Sailor Moon, but it's always building to like a final boss character for each season. And my favorite season is um sailor moon s or it's called sailor moon super it's the third season that's where everybody meets haruka and michiru or also known as sailor uranus sailor neptune yes um and also my favorite beside my favorite character my favorite sailor senshi or sailor scout is sailor moon but i my closest person who I would say like matches her is Sailor Saturn. Mm. And in that arc, Sailor Saturn is like revealed before she is made known as Sailor Saturn as like the incubator for the person who's going to ruin the world. Mm. Um, So she takes like this, she, her father basically poisons her. Her father is like being possessed by this, thing called pharaoh 90 i remember that Um, (laughs) yeah because she's supposed to bring on the destruction of the world and but she is created to be mistress nine and that really like messes with neptune and mitri or and uranus because they're like oh we thought it was sailor saturn but instead it's like this evil person (laughs) who was actually going to destroy the world but in a different way and usagi is like we have to save um, Hotaru, which is like her civilian name. Um, and Hotaru is like an 11 year old, basically. And Uranus and Neptune are like, no, we have to kill her. And um, basically, they're at a moment where there's like no hope, like the world is definitely ending. And like, Haruka is like, are you happy? Are you pleased with? Fuck you, Saki. Saki's just like distraught. But then, um, before all of the, at the same time this is happening, they don't know that like, um, Hotaru has like her own will. So like she breaks out of like Mistress Nine, like controlling her body, and she goes back and she she was good friends with Usagi's like future daughter Chibi Usa. And she returns Chibiusa's soul to her as it had been previously been taken from her. And she 
basically through her friendship with Chibiusa, she becomes realized as Sailor Saturn. So she appears and she's like, before Usagi, and she's like, thank you, Usagi, for protecting me. Like, it really shows, like, how much of an incredible person you are. And I'm ready to, like, clean up the job. And Usagi's like, what's going to happen to you when you clean up? And she's like, I'm going to die. <laughs> and Usagi's like, you can't. And Sailor Saturn, she has, like, this huge, like, metal like scythe thing and she points it at Usagi and she's like no I'm gonna do this bye (laughs) and Usagi's so mad and like upset because she doesn't want Hotaru to die so she actually like powers up into like super sailor moon which at that time was like the highest power up she could have and she goes and she fights pharaoh 90 with sailor saturn and then the gag is is that Sailor Saturn didn't destroy the world. She just like reset it in the way that she kills Pharaoh 90, but what it required of her was to become reborn. So like she returns as an infant. Um and all of that is to say is that, you know, we live in a very dark timeline, but even in Evangelion there's hope. And that's what I like about Sailor Moon is like there's always hope. It's a little bit more explicit than it is in like an Evangelion, but it's like if we can rely on like our collectivity and our solidarity with one another and actually conceive that there are different means to do things, there is a future for us. But once we let that go, there's no future. Um, so that's like a lesson that I keep coming back to. And also like the people that you least expect it can do this. Like people always joke about like, oh, Goku would totally beat um Sailor Moon and like a fight or whatever by like sheer force. But like Goku is motivated by not only just wanting to be a bet the best fighter or whatever, but like for like at least in the anime and the manga, it's slightly a different story. Um, he's motivated by his love for like people and like his friends and for the world to exist. So that's why he always keeps coming back. He has like faith that things will work out, but he actually fights for them. Um, and so does Sailor Moon. So it's not really a matter of how much power you have. It's like, how much will do you have? I find that that's a couple nights ago, I was sleepless because I was experiencing various forms of despair. And Mm -hmm. in the middle of the night at 4am, the way that I managed to comfort myself was by watching like apocalyptic scenes in anime. And there's something Mm -hmm. in which anime and manga, I think has much has a great willingness to say, have everyone die or to come to what seems like beyond the end of the world that I find incredibly appealing. So people are listening like I was watching basically the finale of Devil Man Cry Baby and then I also find it decided to so that's oh, my thing I can't watch that sorry. ever again yeah, I, I have something fixated with Ed we, maybe we'll continue the conversation after we finish this uh, yeah. this recording the podcast and then the other one was finally watching reading the last couple chapters of this very long running very violent manga called Berserk but the the creator um, died just Rest a couple years ago and he was mm-hmm. iconic and it was iconic and he died like unexpectedly young. I think he's only 54. 
and had been holding off reading these final chapters for years because he'd also been releasing updates only like a couple every couple years. And so I didn't want to read it because it just felt so final. But I find like, but something about the apocalypse and coming to the end of and this manga that is now unfinished, but also ending with his death. That there's something about the what seems very morbid that I found comforting. So I don't know if there's lessons to be learned from this, but and I guess like we'll just continue to nerd out after recording. But I, I hear what you mean. Uh, for for a while, like Saturn was the the sailor scout that I felt felt most resonance with. So. And she's a child. Like, like, I mean, all of them are children. I think the oldest one is like Satsuna, Sailor Pluto. She's like 18 and like her human form. Obviously, she's very, very old. But um, I think like Haruka and Michiru, they're only 16. Um, recently in Bitch, the last issue of Bitch magazine, somebody wrote, an article, an essay about Sailor Moon. And they were talking about like how it's wild that people get really upset with Usagi or Sailor Moon because she's not representing like the perfect superhero who like just sucks it up and she does the thing and, you know, doesn't complain and has like these heroic thoughts. And the author's like, she's 14. She went through a bunch of traumatic crises. She sees like people she loves die all the time, even though she gets to make them, you know, come back to life and all of these things. It would be a lot of pressure if we had an equivalent person to like do that today. Mm -hmm. Like, so she's representing a like really normal, like, response of like a of a child Mm -hmm. so and we should take credit we should take pleasure not pleasure as in like happy that she's like that but like we should find solace in that because she experiences all of those things and it doesn't stop her from still doing the right thing Mm -hmm. and a lot of us we live in societies where you know, I mean, not to go dark again, but like with this, with the reversal of Roe versus Wade, the Democratic Party is like, we just trust that, you know, you can just vote us to vote as long as you vote us and nothing bad will happen. And it's like, no, the bad thing has happened. We have to organize against it. There is no other choice. Like, we can't do this wishful thinking that, you know, these people are satisfied. They're not going to renege. They did the same thing with the Voting Rights Act. So, like, you know, as Flavor Flav would say, you know what time it is. Like, let's get to work. I think that's a great way to end the discussion. Thank you so much, Cassie, for joining me today. Um... I'm really excited to see how your career furthers and to continue having conversations with you about anime. Hey, (laughs) thank you for having me. Okay, I'm going to hit stop.